0: Growing in God's Word and learning how to take up our cross and follow Jesus. This is Crosswalk with Pastor Clay Stevens from Cross Culture Church in Raleigh.
1: Plainly there is evil in the world, therefore God must not exist because a God of love and of all power would not allow this evil to exist.
0: Evil. It seems that every day we hear of more and more evil in the world. School shootings, terrorist bombings, disasters. With so much evil around us, it's easy to ask, where is God? If there is so much evil in the world, how can we really believe that God even exists?
1: Evil entered the world as a result of man's choice to rebel against God.
0: I'm Rick Freeman. Welcome to Crosswalk. The existence of God is a highly emotional subject because, as we'll hear Pastor Clay say today, it touches all of our lives in one way or another. But does the existence of evil mean that God doesn't exist?
1: Evil is in the world, but praise be to God, so is the Savior, who has made it possible for us to have victory through Christ Jesus.
0: We're in our new series, The Deceptive Cons, and we've started this series by looking at the deception that says, there's really no evidence that God even exists. Well, over the last couple of weeks, Pastor Clay has been walking us through rational, empirical evidence that God, in fact, does exist. Today, we're going to finish up this deceptive con by looking at a few more arguments for the existence of God, and by dealing with one of the biggest arguments against God's existence that is used today, the existence of evil. As always, thanks for being with us. Now, here's Pastor Clay.
1: Deception, it's deception, it's the art of making people see something that they're not really seeing or think something that they're not really thinking. That's what this series is all about, the deceptive cons, the deceptions that are perpetrated upon the world, as John mentioned even in his prayer a moment ago, the cons that, that men and women are falling for that have, have eternal consequences to them. The deceptive con that we've been dealing with now today will be the third week. And I just really felt like there was a lot to talk about. There are a number of arguments for it. And I felt like it's the base place that you have to start. The deceptive con we've been dealing with and we will deal with today is this. There's really no evidence that God even exists. If you've been with us for the last couple of weeks, we've looked at We've walked through a number of different arguments. That uh, provide evidence, and we we defined in that first week. If you weren't here, go back and listen to that message. Uh, We defined in that first week what evidence is, what's admissible in a court of law, and uh, how you you use that evidence then to lead people into an understanding of the truth that you're trying to convince them of. And so, the deceptive con out there is, well, you know, there's really no there's really no evidence that God even exists we want to deal with that a text that we've looked at each week in regard to that comes from the book of Romans and i know if you guys are a regular part of cross culture you probably know that i'm i'm really a i'm a word of god guy and i i love to just work through texts and uh and this series at least in, in this subject matter doesn't really allow me to do that so i will be honest with you i'm kind of out of my element uh doing these kinds of things that where i'm just not really specifically sticking to the text but when you're dealing with something that, that's that's a, a general idea of just talking about the existence of God and you're trying to convince people that may not be sure that God exists, you sometimes have to look at sources uh, that, that they can get their minds around that might be outside of the word of God but still are evidence uh, of the truth that we're trying to present. But from Romans chapter 1, we've looked at this passage of Scripture. They traded the truth about God for a lie. Every one of you in here knows somebody that you could say that statement about right now. It might be somebody that you know casually. It may be a a loved one, a family member, a a, a son, a daughter, a parent, somebody that you could say that's exactly what they've done. They traded the truth about God for a lie. So they worshiped and served the things created instead of the creator himself, who is worthy of eternal praise. Amen. There's really no evidence that God exists. Well, we've looked at a few of them. If you take notes, we've filled some of those in on the back of your, your uh, sermon outline that we've already covered. And today we're going to look at a few more and hopefully uh, uh, get through all of these. May have to fly through a couple of them. But uh, we're going we're gonna to look at some of these things. Here, and here's where I want to begin today. I want to begin with what's known as the moral argument. Okay, this is just more evidence. We're just, we're just supplying more evidence. Just as if you were a jury, and as I said that first week, many of you are already convinced, hey, you don't have to convince me. I already believe that God exists. But as I said, there are people that you know that do not believe that God exists. And as Peter tells us, we need to be ready to give every person an answer of the hope that is in us. And so if somebody says, well, there's really no evidence that God exists, you can say, really? Have you ever thought about the moral argument? the the moral argument well well what's the what's the moral argument and then you can and you can after today you can dive right in <laughs> tell them about that you may already be aware of the moral argument but the moral argument basically is the idea that uh, if God does not exist objective moral values and duties do not exist that's the first premise of the moral argument um, and I'm kind of following uh, with with the layout of the premise and the conclusion following uh, uh, William Lane Craig's uh, outline. But but that's the first premise, okay? That's the moral argument. It's not a new argument, it's been presented for quite some time, but that's the first premise. If God does not exist, objective, in other words, outside of ourselves, outside of our own influences, our own preferences, objective moral values and duties do not and I would say cannot exist because there is no there is no uh Mooring. There is no standard by which you can develop those moral absolutes, which is what this is talking about. Think about it. If if God does not exist, and if you and I are simply cosmic accidents, which is the other alternative, it was just it was a really wild chance, but ta-da! <laughs> if, that, if that's the case, if we're just all a bunch of moral Accidents, and, and I mean, uh, if we're all just cosmic accidents, and there and there is no God, and there there is no uh, one that we're accountable to, then then really the idea of to, to to borrow the phrase "survival of the fittest" really becomes the the only morality that would matter to to me, or or to anybody else, for that matter, because I'm not accountable to anybody. I, I don't have to stand before anybody. I, I don't. It doesn't. It doesn't matter. So so if a person. If a person murders a man and rapes his wife so that she becomes pregnant so that he can so that he can raise up children that can work in his fields and then take care of him when he's older, then then, then he's justified in doing that because because it's it's he's got to survive this. That makes sense. He's going to take care of him when, Or or even if he does it simply for to fulfill his his sensual uh, uh, desires. In his own mind, he can be justified by it because, because there's, no, there's no moral standard. There's no, there's no accountability. There's no one to say oh, what is right or wrong for me. If I steal a family's food and their children starve to death, if I, if I tell some lie about some person that I work with and get them fired so that I can get the promotion, move up and get their job that I want it, I'm justified because that brings in more income for me, more income for my family. On and on we could go with what I believe would be example after example of morally abhorrent behavior that couldn't be considered morally abhorrent if there is no God. Because there would be no universal standard by which to say that this is right and this is wrong. Do you understand what I'm saying? Does that does that make sense to you? Without God, there it's just it's just you and me, and what's right for you is right for you, what's right for me is right for me, and and that's and that's all that really matters. Hitler can exterminate six million Jews in, in order to uh, to uh, to cause the Third Reich to rise up. Stalin can exterminate upwards of twenty million people for the advancement of the. Communist Empire. Uh, the current Syrian leader, Bashar al-Sadad, whatever, something like that, <laughs> can gas his own people in order to put down an uprising because it's against him. Terrorists can, can set bombs on, in the streets and blow up women and children. Now, I would say that a common denominator in, in all of those types of uh, atrocities... I suspect that a common denominator in there might be that, that every one of those individuals would claim some type of, of, uh, of moral high ground by saying that, that what they did was for a better good. That there was a, that there was a goal, there was an objective that, that, they, that they were trying to reach and so it was for the better. Interestingly enough, I'm of the belief that that our culture is taking that is taking that same bend right now we're living in it right now where they're taking that same mindset in regards to the to the murder of millions of innocent babies or the the lowering of our of our standards of sexuality in a world where where personal benefit becomes the only morality that matters personal uh, Preference, what I want, what I like, what I think. And and I promise you, ladies and gentlemen, as as a student of history and of Scripture, I promise you that is a culture, that is a society that is destined to implode because there is no moral standard. There is no mooring through which you can... can Now, certainly, there have been plenty of people throughout history that have uh, disregarded or ignored those universal moral truths. But they were still there just the same, and 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 which leads to the second premise, which is this objective morals and values do exist. First premise if God does not exist, there can't be any moral standards. Just, there's no mooring, there's nothing to base them off of. Every man can do whatever he wants to do, every man can do what is right in his own eyes, as it says in Judges chapter 17 and chapter 21. But the fact is, objective moral values and duties do exist. That's why historically we can look back and, and those atro- some of those atrocities that I mentioned a moment ago are universally condemned as atrocities against humankind. And the people who perpetrated those atrocities are, are considered monsters. And the reason they are is because there is universal, objective, moral truth. There is a morality that says murder is wrong. There is a morality that says rape is wrong. There is a morality that says uh, feeding the hungry is right. There is a morality that says uh, keeping your marriage vows is, is true. There is a morality that says making a person ride on the back of a bus or drink from a different water fountain based on the color of their skin is wrong. Those, those, are, those are objective moral truths. And everybody knows that they're true. As I said, there have been plenty of people throughout history that have disregarded those moral truths, but that didn't, that didn't negate the fact that those truths were there and that, and that culture as the world has universally always known those to be true. Some of you know the story of the five missionaries uh, that were killed in Ecuador in 1956. You might be familiar with it just because I, I know I've talked about them uh, several times uh, and just in, as I've been, I just, they're some of my heroes in the faith. Jim Elliott, uh, Nate Saint, uh, Roger Yauderain, Ed McCulley, and Pete Fleming. I, I always try and remember their names because because they did not die in vain. Five young men who went down to, to the Amazon jungle in, uh, in the mid-1950s against the advice, counsel, uh, Objections of almost every single person that said, do not go down there. They were going to tr- uh, attempt to reach out to the Wadani tribe, also known as the Alkas. This very uh, violent, very remote tribe, never had any contact with, with uh, you know, civilized man. They were known to be, you know, murderous. And, and so everybody said, do not go down there, which by the way, uh, speaks very highly to just, the, the idea of going and doing something that God lays on your heart to do, even when it makes no sense, even when everybody else is saying, no, don't do it. And God lays it on your heart, and it lines up with Scripture to go and do it. And they went, and they went down there, these, these five young men, and they made contact with the Alcas. And it's a, it's a wonderful story. You can read it in Elizabeth Elliot's book, uh, Through Gates of Splendor. It's made famous in the film, uh, End of the Spear. But they went down there and made contact in that jungle, and all five of those young men, in, in very short order, were murdered. They were killed. And one day, all five of them were killed by some of the tribesmen of the Alka Indians. Now, the reason I mentioned the story uh, is, is because of this. As a result of those five young men's sacrifice, their very family members, their wives, their sisters, relatives, had the opportunity later to take the gospel to the very Tribe, the very people that had murdered them, which then tells, speaks to something to us, doesn't it, about grace and forgiveness that the very family members who, whose loved ones had been murdered went to these Alcas, shared the Goth with them, and under the power of God, they came into a relationship with Jesus Christ as a result of that. And, and here's why I tell the story. Later, the, 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 some of the men had been directly involved in the murder of those five men. They were interviewed after coming to Christ, and they were interviewed about that day and the events that happened there along the river, the Kure River there in the Amazon jungle, and they were asked about it. And, and it was very interesting what at least one of them said in the interview. He said, we knew what we were doing was wrong. We knew that murdering these men was wrong. How did they know that? Why would they know that? In a culture that knew only survival, just make it through another day, do as best you can, that was violent in its very core, how would they know, why would they know that to murder these men was wrong? I propose to you that it's because God has universally placed it there. Look at this. Are you familiar with this text in, in uh, Romans chapter 2? Look, look at what uh, Paul says. When the Gentiles, uh, which simply means uh, non-Jews, they did, they didn't, which wouldn't have the law. I mean, the law of Moses and the, the right and wrong and knowing about this true God. When the Gentiles, who have no knowledge of the law, act in accordance with it by the light of nature, they show that they have a law in themselves. For they demonstrate the effect of a law operating in their own hearts. You see what he's saying? It's already there. Their own consciences endorse the existence of such a law. For there is something which condemns or commends their actions. It is this universal morality that exists. That can't be explained apart from the existence of God. Which then uh, leads uh, to to the... Conclusion, therefore, God exists. If there are moral standards, there can't be if God doesn't exist. There are moral standards, therefore, God must exist. That is the moral argument, ladies and gentlemen. That is a very viable, very logical, very rational argument. Where does this universal sense from the beginning of time, this universal sense that murder is wrong, that rape is wrong, that where do these universal objective moral truths come from? I believe the answer is God. Okay, uh, so there's the moral argument. Let's go on to this next one, and I'm really going to try and fly through it as quickly as I can because, number one, uh, it's like like a mind blower. It's hard. It's hard. This is the, the ontological argument. By the way, onto, I had to look it up. Uh, ontological, ontology is the philosophical study of the nature of being or becoming existence or reality. There you go why it's called the ontological argument. This argument, quite honestly, is an argument from reason. And so it may not contain some of the classical or traditional empirical evidence that we tend to think about when we're trying to build a case for something. This this is a argument from reason. All right. It's more cerebral. You have to think about this one. Okay. You ready? All right. I'm just borrowing from Peter Kreft's uh, lay outline of of this argument, and I'm going to bring it up and try and, you know, just Think about each one of the arguments uh, it, it is an argument that it 's not perfect. It does have its weaknesses it 's been uh, ridiculed by many skeptics as nothing more than than just than just a, just a, a clever uh, kind of trick or or riddle. but I think it 's worth mentioning because number one it 's one of the oldest arguments uh, that we have, and number two, I think there 's validity to this argument if you 're really ready to think through it. It was, uh, it was proposed, by the way, by a man named Anselm of Canterbury in the 11th century. So it was a long time ago. It was later adopted and adapted by the French philosopher René Descartes and some others have, have used this argument. So I said it's not perfect, uh, but, but here's how it goes. Here, here's, here's the ontological argument. First, first premise. It is greater for a thing to exist in the mind and in reality than in the mind alone. Got it? All right, so here's the idea. If I, if I imagine a tropical paradise island that is just perfect. The palm trees sway. The weather, the clouds are just nice and white and puffy, and they just kind of drift by. And lobsters are just right there at the edge of the crystal clear water, saying, "Pick me up, eat me!" And 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 uh, the sand is crystal clear, white, and the temperature is a perfect temperature. And and my wife and I are on this tropical island, and and. and uh, uh, and the uh, the only other thing there is a a mango smoothie machine that operates, and it's it's just perfect, right? If I imagine that, that's nice. But what's greater than that? If that island actually exists. Do you understand? So to imagine something in my mind, that's good, but it's greater if the thing actually exists. You got it? All right, second. God means... This is the way Anselm put it, so it sounds a little funny. That than which a greater cannot be thought. So this is the second premise of the ontological argument. God, by very definition, is the greatest thing that you can think of. Right? Because what is God? God is all-powerful. So can you think of anything more powerful than God? No. God is all-knowing. Can, so is there anything God doesn't know? No. God is everywhere present, so is there anywhere God? No. God, has, God is love. God is all these things. So you can't, you can't even think of anything greater than God, right? You with me? All right, we're doing good. Third, suppose that God exists in the mind, but not in reality, which is what the atheist claims. Man needed some some reason for why stuff happens in the universe that he couldn't explain. Why is there lightning or thunder, and that scared him? And so man said, God exists. So, so uh, it, it, suppose that God exists in the mind but not in reality. Fourth, then, if that's the case, then a greater than God could be thought, right? Namely, a being that has the qualities our God of, the qualities our thought of God has plus real existence, you with me? Because we already established that it's greater for a thing to exist and be in the mind than to just be in the mind. So the greater God could be thought of, namely being that qualities thought of God as plural, as, as has a plus, plus real existence. So then, uh, is there a fifth one? Yeah, but this is impossible for God is that then which a greater cannot be thought. You with me? Huh? Huh? Is that awesome? Right? You can't, okay, if, if I think of it in my mind, the only thing greater than that would be if it existed. If I think of it in my mind, but it doesn't exist, then there must be something greater than that. Namely, something that existed for real. That would be greater. But by very definition, there's nothing greater than God. And so, if, which is the conclusion, if, if God exists in my mind, God must also exist in reality. He has to. God exists in the mind and in reality. That is the ontological argument. I, yeah, yeah, okay, all right. Like I said, it's, not, it may, it's, it's a lot to think about, I know, and all that. This is, By the way, this is what's kind of referred to as a self-evident argument. For instance, uh, to borrow what another guy used to try and explain this. If I I said to you, a four-sided triangle exists, it is self-evident that that is not true. Because by definition, a triangle only has three sides. sides. So for me to say a four-sided triangle exists, it is self-evident that that is not true. In the same way, according to Anselm and others, if I say God does not exist... It is self-evident that that is not true because a God that can be imagined but not be in reality is not the greatest God that there could be. And by definition, God must be the greatest thing that is. So he must exist both in the mind and in reality. There it is. (laughs) I can't wait to hear y'all explain that to everybody. All right. That's the ontological argument. All right. That's that's the ontological argument. Like I said, it's not perfect, but I think there's some merit to it. I think, you know, I think. All right. All right. Let me go on. Here we go. Uh, now, here, here here's the last thing I want to deal with. It's the answer to the existence of evil argument, okay? So this is not really an argument for the existence of God. This is an argument against an argument for the existence of God, right? Let me explain. One of the arguments that is sometimes used, and I would say this is used more by the... By the common skeptic, not, not, you know, some guy thinks he's all, all of that, brainiac or whatever. But for the average person that's unsure about whether God even exists or not, that's, a, that's an argument that you will hear. How, how can you tell me that there's an all-knowing, all-loving God, how can you tell me that he exists when there is so much evil in the world? That, that's the argument. It, there, there can't be this God that you describe to us and all this evil exists. It, plainly, there is evil in the world, right? Can they, would anybody argue with that? Plainly, there is evil in the world, therefore God must not exist because a God of love and of all power would not allow this evil to exist in the world. That is the the argument from the existence of evil. Now, let me say this first. Um, Although it's used a lot for that, uh, arguing uh, that evil exists and therefore God exists, that's really not an argument for the existence of God. It may be an argument um, a, against our understanding of God. It may be an argument against our, uh, understanding why God does or operates the way that he does, but it's not really an argument against the existence of God. Second, let me also say that men and women have grappled with this issue really probably since the beginning of time, the, the existence of evil. And so, you know, I doubt if we're going to solve it in 10 minutes. Okay. So I just to everybody's satisfaction. Third, let me also say, this is a difficult subject. Because this is a very real and a very personal subject. It hits us right where we live. For instance, if we say, say our own Felicity Brown, Will and Jenna's little girl, who develops cancer as just a tiny little girl, as just a, as just a young girl. And, and we would say, how, how, can, how can we say that God is a loving God? How can we say that God exists and that he would allow this to happen to that little girl. And not just any little girl, a little girl whose family is trying to live for the Lord and, and, and serving the kingdom and doing all this stuff. How can we say that God exists? So, so I say that to say to you that, that, that talking about the existence of evil and the existence of God uh, is not something, uh, when, you, when you work those two. You, it can't be tested in a, in a, in a test tube. It, it can't be examined in a laboratory Because it's real life. It's part of where we are and who we are and and the things that we experience in our life. It's it's not something we can just rationally think through. But having said that, though, there are a few uh, rational ideas to think about in regards to the existence of evil and how we can explain that a loving, all-powerful God could also simultaneously exist. So uh, I'm just going to give you a few of these and run through them as quickly as I can. But let's start with this one. Let's start first. Man's sin. In in, in response to the question of how can there be evil in the world and and this loving God, let me just start with this. Man's sin. And the reason is free will. The reason is free will. Uh, In Genesis, you're probably familiar with the story, but in Genesis chapter 2, the Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. In that instant, in that moment when God makes proclamation, free will is known or is in existence or comes into existence. Because God gives man an option. You can, you can believe my word. And the option is really not about eating the tree now. I mean, it is, but, but the option is this. You can either believe me and what I've just proclaimed to you, or you can believe something else. Your own desires, somebody else, Satan's going to come along, whatever else. But you, you, you're, you've got a choice now. You have free will to make. And can I just try and, as best as I understand it, try to explain this to you. Free will was necessary, ladies and gentlemen. Free will was necessary so that you and I could have an authentic relationship with the living God. Do you understand that? That's what this has always been about with God. Without free will, you and I would just be a bunch of robots, a bunch of automatons uh, going around doing everything because we're pre-programmed to do it, pre-programmed to worship, pre-programmed to sing. We'd probably all sing in key and all that kind of stuff because we're pre-programmed for it. Pre-programmed to serve, pre-programmed to, uh, to tithe. Pre- oh, wait a minute. No, that's, no, no, do you understand? That's all we would be. It's just, you know, I love you. I love, you know, we're just, that's all, that's all we are. And that has never been what this is about. Listen to me. That has never been what this is about. God has never, do you understand this? God has never, God doesn't need worship. Do you understand that? God doesn't need worship. Does God deserve worship? Absolutely. But does he need it? No. Did God need a relationship with us? Absolutely not. Did God need people bowing down? Because he could have done that, right? That's no problem. Just make a bunch of robots that just pre-programmed to do it. But it's always been about God choosing to have a relationship with us and then reciprocating, allowing us to have a relationship with him. Now, if you happen to be a reformed theology here, I know this is probably making your skin crawl, but that, I just think that's the truth. That's what scripture clearly teaches. That God allowed man to make a choice so that man could experience what it was really like To have an authentic relationship with God. Because anything that is forced, ladies and gentlemen, is not authentic. It's not real. And so that means that God had to allow us the opportunity to reject him so that we then could have the opportunity to accept him and to acknowledge him as our Lord and our Savior. It's man's free will. Man made choices, could make choices, and God created us that way. By the way, by the way, whether we recognize it or not or admit it or not, we want free will we, we might we might say things like, well well why didn't God stop that drunk from getting behind the wheel so if he does, if God limits our choices to only those that are good, then is it really free will it's not, is it so God gives man free will that doesn't that doesn't God, man's mistakes man's choices don't don't cancel out God's sovereignty. They don't supersede God's plan. God's ahead of all of it and all that kind of stuff. And there's a lot we could talk about. But the point is that at least part of the, the reason why uh, evil exists in the world is, man, sin. The reason was free will. The result was the sin curse. The result is the sin curse. Uh, look, at, uh, look at what Paul writes in Romans chapter 8. Against its will, that's what he's talking. He's he's speaking for creation at this point. Against its will, all creation was subjected to God's curse. It all came under God's curse, but with eager hope. Because what was it? Remember the curse? What was the curse? In the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. All creation was subjected to God's curse. I love this part. But with eager hope, the creation looks forward to the day when it will join God's children in glorious freedom from death and decay. Isn't that awesome? For we know that all creation, what's this, has been groaning as in pains of childbirth. Some of you ladies that have given birth, you ever do any of that groaning? That's an amazing analogy that Paul uses. For we know that all creation has been groaning as in pains of childbirth right up to the present time. When Adam and Eve made their free will choice and rebelled against God and partook of the fruit, the sin curse in that moment fell on the world. And the consequences that came with that choice was sin, was evil that entered the world. By the way, we can't put it off on Adam and Eve, ladies and gentlemen, please. We cannot put it off on Adam and Eve because the Word of God is very clear that each one of us, each one of us have each made our own choices. We've all gone our own way. We've all chosen our own way. Isaiah 53, 6, Romans three ten, Romans three twenty three. all of us have made the choice to rebel against God. So don't, don't just lay it in Adam and Eve's lap. But the moment that happened, the sin curse curse came into the world. And Paul makes it clear in that text that we just looked at there in Romans 8, that when that happened, the sin curse affected everything. It affected everything. Death and decay and disease and, and evil entered the world as a result of man's choice to rebel against God and allow it to come into the world. So the next time that we're tempted to... to to blame God for some evil that exists in the world, we, we might, might want to remember that really this responsibility falls back on, on me and choices I've made that allowed the sin curse to enter into the world. Okay? So man's sin is part of the explanation for the existence of evil. Let me give you another one. Man's finite knowledge. Ladies and gentlemen, sooner or later, all of us have to come to the place where we recognize that we just don't know everything, that we just don't understand everything, that our knowledge is finite, it is limited, and God's is not. Listen to me. Just because we don't understand why something happens doesn't mean that God doesn't understand why something happens. And we have to come to the place where we're okay with being able to say, God, I, don't, I just don't know. I just don't understand. I don't know it all. But God, your word teaches me that you do and so I'll choose to trust you. I'll make that choice to trust you. When, my, uh, when Cindy and I's oldest son, JC, when he was, I think he was about five years old, uh, he, he contracted some sort of virus thing in his face. Is it a virus? Virus thing in his face. Cellulitis in his face. And uh, his face like puffed up and all that stuff. And we took him uh, to the doctor and the doctor said, you know, this is, this is really serious. Uh, this could spread to his brain and it could kill him. We got to get him to the emergency room and get him on antibiotics right away. And so we rushed him uh, to the emergency room. We got there and, uh, and they went to, to put in an IV to start the, the antibiotics. And he was a little boy. He was, he was small and he had, he had little veins. And, and bless their heart, I know they're trying to best, but they could not get that needle in in a vein. They could not get that IV in. And they just kept sticking him and sticking him and sticking him and sticking him. I'm telling you, J.C.'s a grown man today. He's over 30 years old, but I can still hear his cries. I can still remember him saying, Daddy, Daddy, don't let them do it. Mommy, Mommy, help me. Daddy, it hurts. Make it stop. Mommy, Mommy, why are they doing it? Mommy, help me, help me. Over and over again. It was gut-wrenching for us and and to his 5-year-old mind what was happening to him was horrible what was happening to him was terrible what was happening to him was evil from his perspective but y'all know why don't you you know why because our perspective was bigger than his and we knew that if if this if if this Uh, cellulitis didn't get treated, that it could kill him. We knew that he had to get the antibiotics in his body. We knew that they had to stick him until they found a needle. And so we had to stand back and let it happen when he is screaming and begging us to do something about it. Because we knew that there was something that he didn't know. Get the point? Maybe there's just some things that we don't know. Because our perspective is too limited. I, I got to mention this. I don't, I don't have time, but I got to mention this. The whole book of Job, ladies and gentlemen, if you've never read it, the whole book of Job is a case study in the existence of evil and how, how God can coincide with that. And, and, in, that, and in that story, uh, eventually Job begins to say, God, I don't understand why this happened to me. God, I don't understand why this evil has come upon me. God, I haven't done anything to deserve this. God, I want you to tell me, why is this happening to me? Do you know God waits 38 chapters before he says a word? 38 chapters, 129 verses. After the 38 chapters, God responds. In the next 129 verses, the next four chapters, God begins to respond. And obviously we don't have time to read it all, but can I just show you basically sum up up God's response by looking at just the first three verses of his response. Job chapter 38. Then the Lord answered Job from the whirlwind, who is this that questions my wisdom with such ignorant words? Brace yourself like a man. Because I have some questions for you, and you must answer them. And for the next four chapters, God goes on, and he begins to say, Job, tell me how this works. Job, were you there when I did this? Job, do you understand this? And he just begins to, he just begins to name all these things from his creation. And you read it, about halfway through, by the, by the 40th chapter, Job begins, it begins to dawn on Job that this probably wasn't a very good idea to bring this up to God. <laughs> because, he says, because he says, well, you know, it would probably be better if I just kept my mouth Closed, which was, was a really good idea. But God, listen, you can go back and read it. God says, no, I'm not done yet. Job, what do you think about this? How do you know that works? Do you know this? Job, do you understand that? Now, listen, if you've read the end of the story, listen, this is important because you might, you might miss this. If you read the end of the story, you know God wasn't mad at Job, not at all. God was not mad at Job. As matter of fact, God highly praises him at the end and says that he did not sin. But here's the deal. Because he's a father that loves us enough to do this, Job, Job wanted God to answer him. God wanted Job to want him. That's the difference. Do you understand? Job, I want answers. I want to know why. God didn't give Job what he wanted. God gave Job what he needed. And Job didn't need the answers that he thought he did. Job needed God in that moment. Okay, uh, let, let me real quick, real quick. Oh my goodness. Um, last one man's eternal benefit that that's part of the answer folks i i know we can't solve all this in just a few minutes but that's part of the answer to how we explain the existence of evil and 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 the existence of god at the same time in this universe man's eternal benefit it it breaks down this way Uh, the first one is spiritual growth the fact is, and I know we hate this, we hate this, but the fact is more spiritual growth goes on in our lives in the midst of a crisis, in the midst of a calamity, in the midst of a tragedy, than it ever does during the times of prosperity, during the times of happiness. Come on, admit it. Is that not the truth? Can I tell Hey, can, can I give a witness? I never get a phone call. I never get an email Saying, Pastor, just want you to know, we are doing fantastic. Our marriage has never been better. I love my job. We have more than enough money. The kids are all being obedient. It's fantastic. The dog is housebroken. (laughs) And Pastor, I just want you to know, I am growing by leaps and bounds in my relationship with Jesus. I never get that phone call or that email. Now, I'm not saying that those kind of emails and those kind of phone calls can't happen. They can. I'm just telling you the phone calls and emails that I get, our pastor, we're struggling in our marriage. What, what, what can we do? Pastor, they just, they just laid me off my job. How, how could God allow that to happen? Can you tell me why? And I have discovered in my own personal life and the lives of those that, that we have ministered to through the years, that it, in, it is in those moments of crisis that we open ourselves up the most to God. That when we come, listen, this is a good truth. I'd write this down if I was y'all, but it's just me. I wrote it down. It is when we come to the end of ourselves, ladies and gentlemen, that we find God. And can I tell you this? Most of us haven't discovered that yet. We're still struggling trying to figure out, oh, how am I... And so can I tell you this, is it any wonder if God knows that there's spiritual growth that is going to be eternal benefit to you? Is it, does, should it be shocking to us that God would use some calamity, some evil, some bad thing that exists in the world for its causes, but that God would use those things to actually grow me spiritually since that's what's going to go on and all this is going to pass away? All right, here it is. Let me give you Paul what Paul said, 2 Corinthians uh, uh, chapter 4. Let me read it real quick, but we have this treasure in earth and vessels, so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. Now listen, this is a guy this is a guy that knows a little bit about this. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not despairing, persecuted, but not forsaken. Maybe you can identify with some of that stuff, struck down but not destroyed always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus. He's referring to the the torture and the whippings and everything that he had endured for Jesus. Carrying around in our body the dying of Jesus so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. For we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake. So that the life of Jesus also be manifested in our mortal flesh. Watch this. Therefore we do not lose heart. But though our outer man is decaying, and it is, listen, we, we can work out all we want. We can eat good as good as we want, but we're dying. Though our outward man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. Paul says, I'm growing in this stuff. I'm learning. I'm drawing closer to Christ. For momentary, listen, for momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. Why? Because the things that are seen are temporal. They're going away, folks. Your, your situation, I know, I, I know I've got no business speaking on it if, if I've not been into the depth of, of pain that you've been to. But God has. God knows what it's like to feel pain. God knows what it's like to be betrayed. God knows what it's like to be rejected. He knows what it's like to be hurt by those that love him. They're temporal. But the things which are not seen, they're eternal. So the spiritual growth that takes place and, and just adding to it, the last thing that is kind of connected to it, eternal rewards. I, it's, I, I know when you're in the midst of it, you say, I don't care. I don't even care what the reward is. It's not worth it. You know how we say that? Because this, this is what we know. This is where we live. We, we, we work in this, in this. We live in this. We, we have loved ones in this. This is all we know. But I can promise you on the authority of God's word, that's not what we'll say when, we'll, when we're there. When we're we're there, we'll we'll be able to say what the Apostle Paul was even able to say here. This light, momentary affliction, I don't even want to speak about it. It's nothing compared to what God has given me. Faith, listen to me. Faith is the key, ladies and gentlemen. Adversity, evil in this world gives you and gives me the opportunity to exercise faith. And that is critical because, as the writer of Hebrews says, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, without faith, it is impossible to please him. Faith is the key, ladies and gentlemen. For he who comes to God, here we are, that's where we started. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. Evil is in the world. But praise be to God, so is the Savior, who has made it possible for us to have victory through Christ Jesus.
0: While the evidence seems pretty concrete, the reality of God's existence is really all around us. But as Pastor Clay has said repeatedly, God has no desire to prove himself. God desires to reveal himself to anyone who is open to his presence in his or her life. Each person has to make that determination because God will never force himself on anyone. There will always be people that do not believe in God, but it's simply foolish to say there is no evidence of God. As we heard in today's message, the writer of the book Hebrews says, Without faith it is impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. We're glad you spent some time with us for this week's Crosswalk. Each week, Pastor Clay opens the Bible and brings out its exciting and practical truths to apply to our everyday lives. Cross-Culture Church is a new church in North Raleigh. But instead of religion, we're about relationships, and instead of rituals, we practice realness. We meet Sunday mornings at 1030 at the Leesville Road High School, a mile and a half south of I-540, exit 7, and we welcome anyone and everyone who is looking for a place to learn about God's plan for their life. At Cross Culture Church, we experience the liberating, satisfying, life-changing power of the cross, and it's our desire to bring that power to a culture in need of freedom, hope, and joy. We hope you'll come join us on a Sunday morning. We'll save a seat for you.
1: I'm not the, water, I'm not the bread, but I know-